Good morning. It's good to see you all here this morning. If you'll keep your uh, finger in Gospel according to John, we'll uh, come back there in just a moment, chapter 5. I don't know about you, but uh, in my company where I work, um, every year there comes a time called open enrollment. And open enrollment is a time where you get an opportunity to change your health care selections, where you get to make different choices about the dental plan you want or what kind of uh, health care plan that you choose for you and your family. There are very few exceptions to what you can do when you can make those changes. Open enrollment, anybody can make the change. It's available to everybody. But most of the time, those changes aren't available. However, the exceptions are what they call life-changing events. Life-changing events. So let's think about what a life-changing event would be. In the open enrollment scenario, for example, you have the birth of a child. Um, that would be a life-changing event. The death of a spouse would be a life-changing event. Um, and in fact, there are many uh, life-changing events uh, like this. So you have adoption of a child. Uh, you have marriage uh, as a life-changing event. So there are certain things that, uh, that the health care providers identify as a life-changing event. However, I would argue that there are others, other life-changing events um, that maybe they don't recognize, which I think are equally valid. Um, for those who, who have had an opportunity to travel to, to foreign lands, uh, see and experience other cultures, is a life-changing, can be a life-changing event uh, to see how others around the world live. The friendships that we make uh, on a regular basis that last with us through our lifetime can be life-changing events. The people you know, the people that you associate with. Um, I have a couple of friends that I've had for 30 more years um, and those knowing them has changed my life for the better. Knowing them and, and calling them friends uh, has been a life-changing event. And in fact, what we see here in John chapter 5 is another life-changing event. And very simply put, it's a gift. It's a gift of healing that Jesus provided to a man who was sick. And yet, in, tied in with that, uh, that life-changing event that he experienced, there's also a lesson, not only for him, but a lesson for us as well. So we can see that there are certain choices that we have in life that, that result in life-changing events. We choose who we are going to marry, right? Uh, we choose generally when we're going to have children or when we choose to adopt children to bring them into our home, to our household. Those are life-changing events that we choose. And yet there are some life-changing events that we do not choose. Uh, we do not choose to be uh, sick, to be terminally ill. We don't choose to lose our loved ones and our family members. Um, those are life-changing events that we do not choose and we don't have a choice about. And yet, I dare say that even with those choices, those, those life-changing events that are not our choice, that we do not have the opportunity to refuse, they, however, what we do have a choice is how we respond to that life-changing event. I'll give you a simple example. Uh, my dad, today is my dad's birthday. Uh, he would have been 86. He passed away uh, five months ago today. Um, he, he passed away on D-Day. And for those of you who knew my father, he was a huge fan and a great respecter of those who served the country in the World War II. Um, and he was, uh, he was always enthralled by the stories of soldiers who lived through these life-changing events in the trenches in World War II who chose to fight for their country, to die for their country, and to make that choice and that sacrifice. He always respected them for it and for the service that they gave in so many ways. 
But the life-changing event that came about his death, I didn't have a choice to refuse his death. I couldn't say, no, he's not going to die today. He's going to die later. I didn't have that choice. And yet I chose how to respond to that event. Whether I could sit here and be angry and, and bitter about that event, whether I could be mad at God for taking my dad away, he couldn't have another five or ten years, why couldn't he live a little bit longer? The choice that I had was not to change that event. The choice that I had was how I responded to that event, how it changed me as an individual, as a person, and the choice that I had in that reflection, in that response. So that we always have that choice on how we respond to these events, no matter how significant they might be, the choice on how we respond is always belongs to us. So let's take a look at John chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, and let's look and see exactly what happened at the healing of Bethesda. So we see here, in fact, here that, that he was late waiting. Some of your translations may or may not have uh, the last part of verse 3 and the verse 4. Uh, same manuscripts do not have uh, the content verses 3b, the second half of the verse, or verse 4. Um, but there was clearly some healing property in the water. And so this man, for how many years? How many years does it say? He was ill for 38 years. And I dare say if I asked for folks in the congregation to raise their hands who were 38 or younger, he was sick your whole life. He was sick for 38 years. I can't imagine having an illness for 38 years. And he chose to go down to the water. He wanted to get into the water because the water had some healing properties. It had some power to make him well. And his choice was, I want to get down there. But he could never get there fast enough. Somebody was always first in line to get into the water. I always got there before he did. And for 38 years, he was not able to enjoy the healing that the water could bring. He'd see others. He'd sit there week after week and he'd see people healed by the water. But he was never to experience that healing. And so Jesus came along and seeing him, and in verse 6 it said, Jesus already knew that he had been in that condition. Jesus knew. He knows exactly where that man was. He knew where he had been for the last 38 years, suffering from this condition. He felt the pain that the man had. And so he said, and he came to him, do you wish to get well? A simple question, seemingly pointless, Right? Of course I wish to go well. I wouldn't be here if I didn't. But, and yet Jesus was saying to the man, do you really wish to get well? What was the man's response? Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool, in verse 7. When the water is stirred up, and while I am coming, another one steps down before me. There's always somebody quicker than I am to get to the water. And so Jesus equally simply responds to the man, and he says, verse 8, get up, Pick up your pallet and walk. So those three simple verbs are direct verbs. They're simple to understand. Get up, pick up, and walk. And so we take it for granted each and every day. We get up out of bed. We pick up our clothes. We put them on, and we walk out the front door, going to school, going to work, going wherever we want. And yet, remember, this man had been sick for 38 years. He had never done any of those three simple tasks. Jesus spoke to him and said, get up, pick up, and walk. Any other day, the man would have been like, I can't do that. I, I don't have the ability. And yet Jesus was charging him in this very moment to recognize who Jesus was and to respond to the call that Jesus gave him. 
As we mentioned before, Jesus never tells us to do something we can't do. And he knew exactly what this man could do. What was it that the man could do? In verse 9, we see an immediate response to the call that Jesus made. Get up, pick up, and walk. What does the man do? He immediately responds to the call. And it says, immediately, the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. The response to the gift that Jesus gave to him was immediate. Jesus gave him a call, gave him a challenge and said, I want you to do what you've never done before. I want you to stand up. I want you to walk. I want you to get up, be mobile, be active. And the choice that the man made, his faith made him whole. His faith in responding to what Jesus' gift was made him whole. And in fact, we see if we read on further, um, we see in verse 12, the man didn't even know who Jesus was. Who is the man who, who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But Jesus had slipped away in verse 13. And then Jesus came back to him. Where did he find him? Jesus found the man worshiping in the temple. That was the man's response to being healed. That was the man's answer to being brought back whole. His response was to go to the temple and to worship, to give thanks to to the Almighty God for healing him. Even though he didn't know who had healed him, he knew that it was God who had done that. And his first response was to go to the temple. And that's where Jesus found him. So the man had a choice in how he would respond And he chose by worshiping God. Now let's turn back to Luke chapter 17 and look at another simple, very well-known story about another healing that took place. Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 21. While he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And he entered a village, ten leprous men, who stood at a distance, met him. And they raised their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed, but the nine, where are they? 18. Was no one found who who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. And in fact, we see that the one person who responded was the least likely to recognize a Jew's power to heal him. A Samaritan would have been considered an outcast by the Jews and would not have considered been worthy of time or attention. And yet we see the one person that came back, that responded, that answered, to give thanks and to praise God, to fall at Jesus' feet, was the one man of whom it was least expected. And his response 
was to fall at Jesus' feet and to worship him. So we see that these two very powerful, life-changing gifts that Jesus has given to these lepers who had been suffering with an incurable disease, who had been outcast, separated from society, in fact, made to live on their own, and yet they were healed by Jesus at a simple word and a command to go. The man who had been laying on a pallet for 38 years, unable to walk, unable to, to act for himself, always dependent on someone else. And finally, Jesus came and said, get up, stand up, walk. Response that he had to those simple commands, those simple challenges that in no other way would have been possible, these individuals responded with faith, with belief, with knowledge that Jesus could heal them and bring them back to life. So in fact, these gifts of healing, these promises of new life, which is exactly what they were, it's easy to sit here and say, well, those are just stories in the Bible. That's just about somebody who had an incurable disease. That's just about somebody who couldn't get up off of a bed and couldn't act for themselves. That's fine for them. That's their story. And yet I dare say it's true for each one of us in this building today. We may not have been suffering with a physical illness or a physical ailment. We might not have been on death's door physically speaking. But spiritually speaking, we all were. Spiritually speaking, we were all completely and irrevocably lost and would continue to be in that lost state unless Jesus gave us the gift of eternal life. Unless Jesus came to us and challenged us and said, leave your old life, put it behind you. I am going to give you a new life. I am going to give you an eternal hope. I'm going to cleanse the sins that you have like no one else can in no other way. And that gift I am going to give to you requires your faith, your response, your obedience to my call. And so I dare say that this, these physical lessons, these physical healings that Jesus manifested here in the New Testament are simply physical reflections on the spiritual healings that we benefit from today. Jesus can heal us, each one of us, no matter how sick we were. If we have been suffering spiritually for 38 years, something that's weighing down on you, something that's causing you anger and grief and distress, nothing else can solve your problem but Jesus. He can heal you. He can speak and you can be made whole. That faith that we have, though, it's not come easy. We are called, in fact, to, to recognize this gift. If we don't recognize the gift, if we don't respond to the call, we will never avail ourselves of the blessings that Jesus has promised us. But we're not only to recognize it, we're also to exercise it. Much like our physical bodies need activity or they wither away, they waste away, spiritually speaking, we're called to exercise the gift that we've been given as well. And in fact, not only to recognize it, not only to exercise it, but to share that gift. Jesus has given it to each one of us, and he's made it available to the whole world. Not everybody will respond, but we can show others who are lost, who are in that same lost spiritual state that we were in before we knew Christ. We can show them who Christ was, what he did for us, 
and we can help them to understand that same great promise. Let's turn over to Romans chapter 9 and take a look at how we are supposed to recognize that gift. Even though it's freely given, even though everybody has the right to that gift, not everybody will recognize what it is. And in fact, even the people who were chosen by God did not recognize what they had. Starting at the end of the chapter, we'll read verses 30 through 32 of Romans chapter 9, and then the first four verses of Romans chapter 10. Romans 9, 30 to 32. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith? But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer for God, my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them, for they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the answer for what we need. He is the one that we need to recognize as being the gift that God has given to us. We recognize, we see what Jesus has done for us. We're called to have faith in his gift, but we're also called to to exercise it. If we turn back one chapter and look at Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 9. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 18. We're called to exercise that gift, to make it change who we are, our very person. Romans 8, 9 through 18. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, and if heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy 
to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so we see here that the life in the spirit and the life in the flesh are at odds. We can't have both. The promise and the gift that we've been given is eternal life in the spirit. And yet we need to find ourselves responding and exercising as children of God in faith, not in this flesh. And so we see that the spirit of God himself testifies that our spirit, by our spirit, we are children of God. And those sufferings that we go through for a short time are merely fleeting compared to the eternity that we have to look forward to in the life and the hereafter. So we recognize the gift that God has given to us, the healing that God has promised us through his son. We've exercised it. We recognize that we are his adopted children. And in fact, the spirit of adoption in verse 15, we are adopted children. We were outside the fold, but now we have been brought in. We recognize the promise and we exercise it. But let's see what in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, how we can share that gift. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This is one of the great celebrations of Christian generosity and work that we see in the New Testament. And in fact, this is the spirit that we're called to have, the spirit of giving and sharing. We'll read the first 10 verses of of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches in Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God So we urged Titus that as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything in faith and in utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. So we see that Jesus, even though he was rich, gave it all up. And as we read earlier in Philippians chapter 2, he emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant. And being found in that form, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's that gift, it's that sacrifice, that selflessness that gives us the hope of eternal life. And in sharing that gift, as we see here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, in sharing that gift, we can do so above our own ability. How do we do it above our own ability? Because God is there and helping us in sharing that gift. 
We're not doing it of ourselves. We're doing it for him, to his glory, recognizing what he has done for us, not what I have done for anybody else. God has sacrificed his son that we can have eternal life. And that sacrifice is what we are praising him for and thanking him for. So let us recognize that gift, what God has given to us. Let us exercise that gift in who we are and changing us to the very core. Let's, it's a life-changing event. How can we recognize this gift that God has given to us and not be changed fundamentally? Not be changed who we are, our perspective on the world, on life, on others around us. We are fundamentally changed by that gift that he has given to us. And we're called to share that gift as well. So two final passages, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. As any gift that's given to us, it makes us better in some way. The, the rich gifts, the, the valuable gifts that we see, uh, add to us, add to our joy, add to our, our, our knowledge, our understanding in some positive fashion. And certainly this gift that God has given to us speaks to us in ways that no other gift can possibly. And yet we're called to step up and to continue even greater. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. For beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, and things that accompany salvation though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to recognize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Faith and patience are the two ways that we are steadfast in following what God has given to us, in following his word, in following his way. And it's that full assurance of hope that we have until the end that we're called to exercise. And finally, what do we have to look forward to? What is there in the end? We're not here for this life. We are looking forward to the next so let's turn back, if you still have your finger in John chapter 5, let's turn back to John chapter 5 and look at the end of the chapter. Sorry. Um, John chapter 5, verses 25 through 29. You'll recognize that this is very shortly after the healing that took place at Bethesda. John chapter 5, verses 25 through 29. Truly, truly, I say unto you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. That's the end we have to look forward to. Either a resurrection of life 
or a resurrection of judgment. That gift has been made available to all. What is your response to that gift? What is your answer to that gift? How will that gift change who you are? If you've accepted that gift, if you put Christ on in baptism, but it hasn't fundamentally changed you, it hasn't made you a new person, it hasn't realigned your expectations in your life in ways in, in, you can't imagine by yourself, but how God would lead you, we are here for you. If you have answered the call, but you haven't felt the deep faith in response, we are here to help you. If you are urging and looking for that call, if you are wanting to respond to the call to put Christ on in baptism and to, to benefit from the gift that God has given to us, if you want to answer the call, we are available to help you. Won't you make your needs known as together we stand and sing?